You know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a fraction of what they really have? The streaming service actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only about 6,000 of those are available in the good old US of A. That means you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows. Unless, of course, you use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location, protecting your devices from unwanted snooping and allowing you to control where streaming services and other websites think you're located. There are over 100 different locations to choose from, which means you have access to thousands of new shows and movies no matter where you live. This doesn't just work with Netflix, it works with Disney+, Hulu, Max, a UK streamer called BBC iPlayer, and more. I was on a work trip in the UK during the final season of Game of Thrones, and I tried logging into my HBO account to watch a new episode, but the technology wouldn't let me because of geoblocking. And I wish I had this app at that moment, because I now realize how incredibly easy it is to work around that problem. Here's a more recent example. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is not streaming on Netflix in the US, but I just fired up the episode where Dennis tries to have a peaceful mental health day and technology keeps interrupting his plans. All I had to do was open ExpressVPN, connect to a UK server, refresh Netflix, and the show just popped up. It's super easy. I've also heard good things about that show called Billions, but I've never been a Showtime subscriber, so I've never seen it. But it's actually available right now on Netflix in South Korea, and with ExpressVPN, it took five seconds to switch over and start checking it out. With ExpressVPN, you get high-quality streaming from devices like your phone, laptop, tablet, and TV. And crucially, it protects your privacy and security to keep your information safe from hackers. Stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you all three extra months free when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash slash film. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slash film to get three extra months completely free. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about Andor, episode 12, Rick's Road, this is Slash Home Editorial Director Peter Soretta, and joining me on his podcast is Slash Home Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Star Wars expert Brian Young. Hi. <laughs> okay, guys, uh, before we talk about this episode, let's get to some feedback. Uh, Willie from Boston writes in uh, to answer your question from last week Anto Krieger hasn't met Luthen in person during their rapid fire bickering saw mentions the possibility of Krieger out in Luthen and he then clarifies he's only interacted with Anto indirectly and doesn't know him from a hole in the wall so yeah there's the answer <laughs> to that uh the other email actually we've got a lot of emails writing in with theories of what was going to happen in this week's episode and almost all of them were incorrect so so there's no point in reading them here. But um, the other email I wanted to read this week was from Bob from Nashville. He wrote in that while watching Antor, Andor episode 11, uh, there's a scene where Cyril breaks into a locked cabinet. And I was taken aback when I saw this because I happen to own that cabinet. 
I actually, it's actually a Joe Colombo Bobby rolling office organizer. I figured the audience might appreciate it. Here's a link so you can purchase your own. I'll put the link in the show notes in case anybody actually wants that cabinet. Uh, but I mean, this happens all the time, like, uh, especially with TV productions, e- even movie productions, they aren't able to create every single thing that you see on the screen. They, they have prop masters who are buying stuff that will look, you know, like it fits into the star Wars universe. Uh, but I wanted to ask you guys, is, is there ever been, because I, I relate to Bob from Nashville because there's been moments where I've seen stuff in movies and been like, Oh my God, that's not that. That's this thing I own. Has that ever happened to either of you? Um, so the biggest offender, I think, is probably in Phantom Menace and Qui-Gon's lady's razor. Oh yeah. Of a, of a communicator, which <laughs> is charming, especially when they start making toys that, that are based on that design. Like um for Phantom Menace, they had the uh, the Comtech chips and the Comtech reader was Qui-Gon's comlink, and it was just this giant talking women's razor. <laughs> and it was funny. I don't know. It was like it a Gillette r- women's razor, too. I, I think they had to, like, pay them money for it. The thing is, strangely, usually this does lead, this does lead a props, you know, like props that like the or I, I would say hero props, I guess you'd call them. Like props that like the heroes yeah. actually use. It's usually like background props that this happens. So that was like a, a strange instance where it was like front and center. It's it's weird though, because like with the instance of that razor, like I don't think they make razors that look like that anymore. So it was like just this acute moment in time where you're like, Oh yeah, that was a razor, but like now like people watching it are like, Yeah, that's a com link. Yeah, it, it was a razor so you're saying it was a razor that was out at the time of release. Yeah. 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 Brad, have you ever had this happen to you? Uh, no, actually, no, I've never, ever, no, I've never seen any, like anything like in a movie that was like, Oh wait, I have that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, one of the instances I remember is with JJ Abrams, Star Trek, there is, um, in the bridge, like the thing that they use to like go to light speed or, whatever it is <laughs> is actually like this device it's a warp that speed peter warp, warp speed. speed yeah i'm sorry brad uh it, it's actually this device that like is used in retail to scan like items so <laughs> it's literally light up like the red side of it where like you'd like you know place a barcode and scan it um and once you see that you can never unsee it anyways okay let's uh <laughs> let's get to this episode uh this is the season finale of Andor, and it's titled Rick's Road. And uh, Brad, what are your brief thoughts on this episode? Well, I didn't want this to ruin the rest of the season, but it just completely tanked the show for me. So sorry, sorry about it. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, no. This finale is uh, like this is gonna be a weird. This is gonna be a weird podcast. <laughs> no, this this finale is uh, is outstanding. Um, I appreciate uh, some of the, the moves it makes. Um, there's, you know, I love that they didn't try to go big with this finale. You know, there's obviously um, you know some some big moments that happen, but they didn't try and like turn it into like a a more you know prototypical Star Wars finale. It still has. Uh, lots of great moments of subtlety. It still keeps the focus squarely on on Cassian and the Rebel Rising, especially within Ferrix. 
Um, and yeah, there's some, again, the writing in this series just does not disappoint every single week. There's like some, some monologue, some exchange that is just perfectly written. And, uh, this, the finale was, was no exception at all. I, uh, I loved every minute of this and yeah, I'm, I'm so pumped to see where they go for season two. Brian, what did you, what are your thoughts on this episode? Um, yeah, no, this is the worst. I don't know why. No, um, <laughs> No, it, it was it was terrific. It really was this great capstone to what we got. And um, I know a lot of people were like, well, he just gets off Ferrix really fast. Are we ever going to see these people again? I feel like in one of our podcasts, you said that you're like, are we even ever going to see these people again? And I think that the choice to stick with Ferrix and to keep that central helped pay off this ending so well um, that it was just so fun to see the drama of all of these people coming together with all their different aims and seeing how it works out. And it was rousing. Like it was, it was stirring to watch people just start, you know, when Brasso kicks that, the, the prefect in the chest, I was, I was cheering. I will say that I had to go back to my notes and be like, wait, who is that again? We haven't seen them since episode two. <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, I I thought this was brilliant. I I thought uh, it was brilliant how all the storylines come together. It's one of my favorite things in movies and TV shows is when like you have a lot of characters who are all kind of in their separate storylines, and then you eventually have the scene where you know they start crossing paths and and it all like comes together in like one big climactic uh, thing. And I, I this is that episode of the of Star Wars. Uh, and, uh, it's also, you know, at times a masterclass in tension ex- escalation. Uh, if I have one criticism, I, I think it becomes abundant in this episode for me. And I'm, I'm sure Brian will disagree <laughs> is, uh, That's I don't, I'm here. yeah, I don't think the score of this show is getting me as emotionally involved as I should be. There's moments where I feel like I should be crying or I should be like experiencing more emotion. And I feel like the, the score is so cold and uh, it's not. Um, I would argue I feel like I'm on the edge. I would argue that the score in this series is maybe less cold than the rest of the series, especially when it comes to uh, the music that's played on Ferrix. Oh yeah. So, especially the musical instruments and stuff. Like that. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing, like the music, when it's doing its job feels very invisible to me which I don't think is a positive or a negative. And when it finally started popping out, like especially in this episode, especially with all of the wind instruments that they were playing in their procession, it felt very haunting and it felt very um, purposeful because it felt like what they were doing was sort of going after two different motifs. And, and one of them on one side is sort of narrating the pictures we see of the American revolution with the, the the um you know the one guy with the the drum and then the the two flutes behind him or whatever you know what i mean yeah and then the on the other hand is i went through and rewatched the procession scene in godfather 2 um in preparation for writing my article about this episode because i think there's a lot of godfather in in this episode in particular and the music is so hauntingly similar it feels like they might have pulled it right out of that yeah. By the way, I want, I want to point out that I'm not talking about the processional stuff. I feel like 
I mean, that has obviously probably been written by the composer, but I'm talking about the more, um, what would be the word for it? Not diegetic. No, no, the, uh, like the, the rest more... of the rest of it. I and, score, and yeah. it has felt very invisible to me, which I don't necessarily see as a positive or a negative. Yeah. Okay, let's get into it. Uh, so the opening shots of this, we see woman soldering wires on a circuit board, while a hollow projector projects an image of his father, Salman Pak. Uh, we later learn it's a bomb. I wanted to ask you guys, did you instantly know what was going, what he was making? It felt very apparent. I don't know. This feels like a gotcha question. It felt apparent to me. Yeah, like, was yeah. that not? Yeah, it definitely, definitely felt like it was uh, a bomb. I don't, I'm not yeah, sure, yeah. sure what else it would have been. I, I, hey, I wasn't sure. I was like, maybe he's creating some kind of piece of technology that like could be used to get them out of something. But yeah, um, I think it was it was pretty obviously trying to make you think it was a bomb, but I thought maybe they were gonna like swerve it in some way. Um, okay. Well, I don't know. Like, I I got the impression it was a bomb and kind of stuck with it, yeah. Because this has the feeling and the vibe of like we've talked about this on the podcast before that like um, late or early twentieth century like anarchist labor movement, right? Yeah. And and bombing places was pretty commonplace back then. And like thinking about the intentionality of Tony Gilroy, especially with him on the script, like why would they be showing us these close ups of them building something if it wasn't going to pay off later? It's it's literally Chekhov's bomb. Oh, yeah. No, no. I thought it was going to pay off later. I just thought they were going to take a swerve with it and it not be like some kind of destructive bomb, but be something else. But it, it's totally fine. This is not a criticism on my part. I was just wondering if, if either of you had thought like, Oh, maybe they're going to do something else with that. Um, so the next scene is an Imperial shuttle landing on Ferrix and out comes Dedra Miro flanked by death troopers. And I was actually kind of surprised to see this because aren't death troopers like, uh, held for like the top Imperial officers. So it depends. Death Troopers were actually in Rogue One when it initially came out. They were part of the like sort of research and development and science teams that that Krennic was part of. And then we kind of see them creep into other places and creep into the ISB. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily for higher ranking officers it's for officers in white uniforms. And it's, I mean, like from a visual standpoint, the reason for that was literally as simple as Gareth Edwards wanted to do an inverse of Vader in black and the white stormtroopers showing up on uh, the Tanavi four uh, with Krennic and his black stormtroopers uh, or death troopers here, the black clad ones on um Lamu at the beginning of Rogue One and so like they get placed where they look cool and they look way cooler <laughs> opposite people with white uniforms so Brian I love how sometimes like it, it, it's about the uh th there's been put a lot of thought put into this and like it, it has some kind of extra meaning and then sometimes it's you like oh they just look cool if something doesn't look cool in Star Wars they're doing it wrong I agree. I agree. Uh, speaking of looking cool, the Lambda class shuttle parks next to this other like 
shuttle, which I was not sure if we had ever seen before. And I did some research. Brian, do you know where the shuttle is from? Because if I'm not one. mistaken, this is one of the sort of cargo shuttles that we've seen that we saw in Rogue One. Yeah, it's the Zeta class heavy cargo shuttle, and this is the same kind of shuttle that Cassian, Jin, and the rest of Rogue One used to infiltrate Scarif. So yeah, there. Uh, Zanwan tells Brazo that Cassian is headed headed back for the funeral. Uh, Corv and Dedro walk through the alleyways in Ferex while uh, Cinta tails them. There's a bunch of stuff that happens here that it kind of happens fast. Uh, Nurchi gets info from Zan Wan. Like, he's kind of like playing the spy, the Imperial spy in this episode, uh, which uh, we can talk about a little bit later. So on Curson, we cut to Curson. Oh, let me say this. I, didn't, I, I meant to say this in my brief thoughts, but I really could have done without the Coruscant stuff in this episode because it feels like it, it it's totally a different world i mean it literally is a different world but <laughs> do you know what i mean like it, it just doesn't seem connected to How, anything but but the thing is is though like it ties up two very significant story threads that if they didn't get tied up you would be screaming like well what happened to anto krieger and what happened with mon mothma and like you know it well, okay, the Anto Krieger stuff, I think you could still tie up. Like, you can jump to Curson. I'm not saying don't jump to Curson. I feel like the Mon Mothma stuff, I don't know, maybe it should have been done in the in last week's episode or something. Well, I think it reintroduces Blevin, right? Like, because what they're doing yeah. is setting the stage for season two. And Blevin coming in and working the Mon Mothma angle is actually really interesting because we haven't seen him since Dedra started getting her promotions, right? Yeah. Um, so seeing him come back and climb back the ladder is great. And then seeing Mon Mothma trying other methods to like test what's going out and knowing her drivers there. Like, I think that's a really great bit of intrigue, but it also delays. Um, I think, I think there's a really great magic trick that they pulled in this episode about Cassian's appearance on Ferrix. And part of it is being able to go to Coruscant and part of it is being able to sort of delay his first appearance. So none of us ask, wait, how'd he get there? It just has this beautiful, like Harry Lime third man sort of moment where it's just like, Oh, I guess he's on Ferrix. The story's moving forward. Yeah. Okay. So on Cursant, Mon Mothma unclasps her gown. She's waiting for Perrin in the, their, their limo. And he shows up and uh, she asks for privacy, which is, she knows what she's doing. She's literally like, it's like record me. You know, pay attention. Uh, and she berates uh, Perrin for gambling away their the money uh, as Chorus, the driver, eavesdrops. And, uh, you know, he denies it because he hasn't been gambling any money. And I, I, I wanted to ask you guys, what is the end game here? Because, I mean, Brian, you said that he's she's like trying things to see where things go. She's, she's buying time. If the Imperial Security Bureau wastes time investigating Farron and or Perrin and his gambling debts, that gives her more time to try to work out this deal with the gangster. And so I feel like it's a misdirect a little bit where she's trying everything she desperately can to try to find other ways to do the money, but she relents by the end of the episode. And it's supposed to be a feint to say like, oh, maybe she doesn't want to do this with her kids. She's going to try this direction, which makes it that much more heartbreaking when we see those shots of her presenting Lita to to the gangster at the end. 
Yeah, no, that's what I felt like. I felt like this was a new direction. She was, uh, she, by doing this, she was not going to give her kid uh, over or introduce her kid to, uh, what's his name? Davio? Davian? Something like that, right? Um, and uh, I, I don't know. It felt so, like such a weird swerve that like at the end of the episode, then it's like, oh, no, that's what they're doing. Um, but uh, I, I guess buying more time, I guess, I, I, I guess it makes sense. Um, there's a mention of Canto Bite there. And, um, and who doesn't uh, love Canto Bite? I love that place. <laughs> uh, Brian, Brian, Brian. <laughs> A lot of people. A lot of people don't like it. I think it's just a very vocal minority. Uh, Okay, uh, we're moving on. So Cinta comes home, and Val is waiting for her. And I think it's clear that Val is much more excited to see Cinta on a personal level than Cinta is to see Val. and uh, Or at least Cinta is much more distracted by her role in, in the cause and I wanted to ask you guys, what, what do you think is going on here in this relationship? I mean, this feels like it's roughly the same kind of thing that happened before where, you know, Vel is still, you know, trying to maintain this relationship they have. But Cinta is very squarely focused on the the rebellion and the cause and exactly what they're doing, you know. And she, Vel has to really try to, like, pull her away from that, you know, that, that moment where she says, come away from the window. It's like, you know, come on, like, let's have, like, a moment together where we're not worrying about this stuff. I feel yeah. like this, this is going to have to come to head next season, right? Or uh, they break up in the intervening time because they can't handle, uh, you know, Vel can't handle the lack of attention on her and the split attention on the rebellion. But since yeah, that's focused. that's what that's what I was thinking too. Actually, is like because there's supposed to be like uh, a year that passes between now and the next season, and I think that it would be interesting if by the time we catch up with Vel and Cinta, like they've already broken up, and then the next time they see each other, it's like a little bit awkward, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay, so Cassian sneaks through the town. He pays a visit to Clem's brick, and uh, we get a flashback to Clem cleaning up some rusted pieces. He's scavenged, and uh, Brian, I wrote down, have Brian explain the metaphor being relayed in this scene. (laughs) Um, Which, I mean, the metaphor is just, why are you doing this, man? I've been out of 12th grade grade English for a long time. I I feel like there's a lot going on here. There's what he's saying, but there's also like the like taking the pieces that are rusted and like restoring them to newer condition. So there's I mean, there are it it does work on a couple of different levels. One, like what what um, what Clem here is doing is essentially what Luthen is doing. Right. He's seeing these rusty pieces and putting them together to put the rebellion together. But for Cassian, it's also about like him learning that the lesson Cassian learns in the first place about this is that things aren't what they seem. And Cassian isn't what he seems. And Cassian isn't doing the sort of things that people are expecting him to. And he's growing and changing because he's being underestimated the same way these pieces are. Um, And so so Cassian is is these pieces. I I think I think Cassian Cassian is these pieces um 
is how he views himself. But I also think he's thinking of Clem, especially later when he sees Luthen and and makes that ask to say, like, kill me or bring me in because he sees Luthen as one of the pieces. But Luthen is putting these pieces together himself. I don't know. It's just a really um, it's a really elegant metaphor that kind of like says more than it. it, it <laughs> there's a lot more lifting that it does than it seems on the surface. One hundred percent. Uh, okay, we have a couple scenes that like kind of are doing some uh, place setting. Uh, Cassian breaks into the shop. Helga tells him about Bix. Uh, we see shots of Bix in the prison. We see Luthen in the mountains overlooking Ferrix. Meanwhile, we hear we hear a portion of Nemec's manifesto, uh, foreseeing the day where one single thing will eventually break the siege, and. Uh, Brad, any thoughts on Nemec's manifesto and, and its use here? I mean, it's uh, it's fantastic. It's a great piece of writing, the way it talks about tyranny and just how, you know, looking at the Empire and how they're trying to control things, like it might seem intimidating, but in reality, it's just desperation, uh, trying to hold on to something and keep people in line so that they can have power. And I love this, the idea of that doing something as uh, heinous as uh, oppression, you know, being tyrannical requires constant attention because people aren't meant meant to be oppressed. Like this isn't the way things are supposed to be. And it requires endless effort to keep people under, you know, a boot and just, yeah, I I absolutely love this. And it's, it's clearly like a big moment, you know, for, for Cassian too, I think to, I don't know. I don't know if he was like really uh, ever sat down to like listen to this before if this really is like the first time but like it it really feels like it's like the best time to resonate with him and like it's that along with you know marva's death it's it's that last push he needs to really like become part of the rebellion for real yeah i think one of the things i like about it most and 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 we've talked about this is that it reads very much like the sort of manifestos that you'd le- read from labor activists who are blowing things up in in that early 20th century era. And back then, this sort of rhetoric was really... um, People people didn't really respond to it the way we do in the show. So it's really interesting to see these really radical ideas. Um, I, I I think are sensible, but to a lot of people in the establishment feel very radical and have... I think the entire audience going like, yeah, yeah, of course, this is how things are supposed to be. And so like, this is really great uh, propaganda, right? Like, yeah, don't cross Starbucks union picket lines. <laughs> uh, and I also think it's great that like the writings of this guy that will be dead for five years by the time that any real victory is achieved. Um you know, have, have become end up becoming a big part of this rebellion. And I think that that that's cool, and I'm 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 interested to see how that comes into play. Uh, oh, actually, one other thing I wanted to bring up, I forgot to bring up in feedback, was I forget who said this. Someone tweeted this. Oh my god! I, okay, I'm not going to be able to credit the person. I'm sorry, but someone uh, mentioned the prison outfits. And how the colors of the prison outfits are the same colors that become the colors of the rebellion outfits. I wanted to ask you, Brian, if if you, do you think that's intentional or do you think that's uh, us looking too, someone looking too far into things? Why not both? 
<laughs> um, like I think that that the the orange alliance um, color is probably not a coincidence, but I don't think Cassian's on the fashion design team for the Rebel Alliance. Those flight suits are probably still around. In fact thinking about Nemec's manifesto and about this comment specifically it reminds me of a story that Pablo Hidalgo I think wrote into the star the book Star Wars Propaganda which is really terrific if um you haven't read it and it's either that book or there was a military history book in Star Wars but the idea was that like the rebels were using the holonet to just like put information out there and I could very uh, easily see Nemec's manifesto being one of the things they put out. But one of the things that they put out that was most important was the instruction manual for X-Wings. <laughs> so that, like, yeah, anybody could look it up and look up the instruction manual. So if some random-ass farm boy shows up, at least he might have read the instruction manual once. That's smart. Um, I do like the idea of them reclaiming the colors of, like, what they were imprisoned in for, like, the rebellion well, I mean, like, that prison orange is a pretty standard trope, though, yeah, too. Yeah. So the production designer could have just been like, prison, orange, go. For sure. Okay, uh, Dedra gets briefed on her uh, by her people, and we get the layout of the land. And uh, cut to Coruscant. Chorus tells Blevin about what he heard in the limo uh, before learning that Into Krieger and all his men have been were massacred. Uh, Dedra is upset. That no one survived to be interrogated, but her superior says the mission wasn't about the intel. It was about wiping the taste of Eldani off the from the member from the emperor's mouth. Uh, I think it's interesting here that Dedra in the scene before uh, basically denies the imperial. Uh, they wanted to put snipers on the second level uh, for the funeral. And she says no snipers because she wants Cassian taken alive. And uh, if she had allowed snipers, maybe this whole thing would have gone differently in the favor of the Imperials. And uh, yeah. It's it's complicated. No, no strategy works the same way for yeah. each situation. Um, but it, it, it's just interesting because she's taking uh, the non-imperial look at things of like let's 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 put less force, let's whatever, and it's it's because of that that she kind of lost <laughs> in a way. Um, anyways, Corv sees Rashi leaving Marva's residence with B two emo and realizes they've been played. Meanwhile, Cassian is hiding out in. In the maintenance tunnels underneath Ferrix, which, if you ask me, guys, if 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 I was Imperials on Ferrix, and I was expecting Cassian to show up, and I was, uh, you know, we, we had some troopers, you know, I, I'd send a couple in those those uh, t- maintenance tunnels below Ferrix. It seems like stupid to not be patrolling those as well, but. There's every chance they they don't know about them too, and it's interesting. Like they mentioned that those were the ones Marva was was crawling around in to see if they could get into the Imperial garrison in the hotel because it seemed like they didn't know about it. I mean that that's also possible as well. Yeah, and and it adds that third man kind of vibe. Um. Brazo hugs Cassian, and Cassian regrets not being back in time uh, to see Marva. And uh, Brazo relays Marva's inspirational message 
which I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because the inspirational message mentioned that he was kind of the spark, a spark in this like rebellion of sorts that's, that's rising up. But he was never able to tell her his part in this Eldani thing. Did she know that he was part of that? Or is she just talking about what happened on Ferrix before? I think she knows him as a person. And that she knows the content of his character to know that he's going to be doing something good. And she knows that he left because he did something bad. And the story travels around Ferrix that he killed those guys, those those two corpos. Yeah. Which she doesn't seem that plussed about. But, uh... No, I think she understands the content of his character and knows that Brasso delivering this message from her in this moment is going to have maximum impact on changing him as a person and making him, like, wake up a little bit. Yeah. Um, Cyril and Sergeant Mosk are sitting across each other in an aisle... uh, Sitting across from each other uh, in the aisle of, like, that transport ferry that we've seen before. And they trade hats. This I can't figure out. What? What? Why did they trade hats? Better disguises. Okay. I don't know. I I thought there was more going on here. I was like, maybe I missed something. Why are they trading hats? Uh, they're just weird. Those two guys are just weird, and they're in love with each other. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Brian's writing uh, fan fiction over on Tumblr. You can read his, uh, it's called uh, Cyril and Mosk, a Star Wars story. Uh, <laughs> uh, Nurchi uh, sees Pelga scurry away from, from a closed door. Uh, and he has information on where possibly Cassian is. Luthen approaches Val, who fills him in on everything. The plan is to kill Cassian before they have a chance to talk with him get any information uh the time grappler which by the way that's the name of the guy in the bell tower uh, according to um the audio description i love that the name that he's a time grappler um but the time grappler in the bell tower begins ringing the beskar steel bell can i say like how much i love the elegance of that scene prior to when Dedra's telling him not to put snipers, they're talking about the timeline they put them on and how it would be a few hours. And then Vel does that, and she's like, it'll be a few hours, but you'll know it by the the ringing of the anvil. And they set all that up so that when it, as soon as it starts ringing, you as the audience know, like, oh, shit's going down. Like, it's just so well designed to make you understand that things aren't the way they're supposed to be because how would we have any idea how they're supposed to go in the first place uh yeah so the time grappler is in the bell tower it begins ringing the beskar steel bell and uh again i love shows and movies where all the stories come together and you have the various characters uh crossing paths for the first time even if they don't interact with each other like even if it's like they walk by each other and i love when you have also, you know, movies or shows like this, and then like an event connects all of it. Like the ringing of this bell is, you know, even if they're not in the same location, they're in the same area and that bell connects everything together. So I think it's cool. Um, also that when the, the, the bell ringer showed up the first time, 
I, I feel like you asked, like, what's the point of this? Why is this here? And Brad and I were like, it looks cool. And now we're all like, this is the <laughs> coolest thing. Like, it ties everything together. It's so perfect. It was just a great tool. And it was just, I mean, that's just good writing on Tony Gilroy's part. Like, putting all those pieces in play and making us go, I wonder what that's for. And then showing us. And it's more awesome than we could have conceived. Yeah. No, I, I, I 100% agree. Uh, okay, so a band of musicians leads the funeral procession with the daughters of Ferrix behind them. And how awesome was this, like, funeral musical? Uh, what, I don't even know what you'd call them. I guess a musical a procession. procession. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although, like, the instruments seem very Earth like, they don't seem like uh, the musical instruments we've seen in Star Wars. Thus far, I mean, what would you want? Like a jizz whaling band? You know, I want to see them playing the instruments at the Ewoks for, in like the, uh, you know, the. Uh... <laughs> no, actually, I think a lot of the flutes reminded me of clue horns. Actually, like they had the yeah. extra bits on them that reminded me a lot of the cantina band instruments. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, the escalation of the tension in the following scenes, I think, is also masterful, especially with that the the bands playing the music. Cassian spots Luthen from his hideout spot, and I think instantly he knows why Luthen is there. Uh, Nurchi rats out Cassian's position to Korv, and uh, the band comes to its position in the square, and Marv's brick is carried forward by Brazo, accompanied by B2. And uh, I have some nerdy stuff here for you guys. The font on the brick is not Arabesh. It's a new design created by graphic designer Barry Ginjel. I think is how you pronounce the name. G-I-N-G-E-L-L. Who, by the way, full circle, Brian, full circle, Barry Ginjel was seen last week as the hologram for Anto Krieger in that episode. So that that is the graphic designer who created this and uh, works on the show. His his legacy lives on even though Anto Krieger doesn't. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh and the the other thing this is even more geeky. I did, do you know anything about the the dates on the brick, Brian? Did you look did you look into this? No, I didn't. Um I'm assuming they're just made up and Ferrix based. No, no. This is actually great stuff. So Marva's funeral stone has a bit more text below it. it. It's her birth and death dates, and they're done in CRC dating. This is a dating system that was only used in the reference book Star Wars Scum and Villainy, Case Files on the Galaxy's Most Notorious, written by some guy named Pablo Hildago. Uh, and uh, it has, uh, yeah, it appears in this episode. Nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> and also, if you you can uh, make out the dates and stuff, and it basically says five BBY is basically what it is. But anyways, um, so and no surprise there. And uh, w- once in the front of the whole, uh, uh, once in the front, uh, the whole crowd like continues forward in a faster procession, and B two projects a message. From Marva, the core of the message, I think, is about how they've been asleep at the wheel, letting the Empire grow, and now they're on this world, and now it's time to wake up. 
And uh, well, it's an ins- inspirational, emotional uh, speech. Wanted to get you, your guys' thoughts. Brad, do you have any thoughts on uh, Marva's speech? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, th- I mean, th- this uh, this monologue, you know, combined with uh, Nemec's manifesto and, you know, uh, Lucin's speech from a-, a couple episodes ago and, you know, Cassian's uh, monologue about how he stole from the Empire and how easy it is. Uh, these are some of the best Star Wars monologues uh, we have ever heard. You know, like, there, there's these speeches are better than uh, a lot of the writing in any of the Star Wars movies. Um, they're just riveting, and they're they're rousing. You know, these are the perfect uh, speeches to, to truly spark a rebellion. Uh, and I love wait, how Marva... Wait a second, Brad. You're, you're saying that, that Tony Gilroy wrote better dialogue than George Lucas... <laughs> I know it's shocking. It's shocking, um, but yeah, I just I love the way that Marva's speech, you know, starts starts quiet and starts slow, and then she gets more and more uh, angry as she goes along, as she starts talking about waking up and not sleeping. And man, it's just it is it is so good the way that the, the, it just builds until it it blows up, literally and figuratively. <laughs> Agreed. I like that. Uh... It- it reminds me of, of two things. One is this feels like the Star Wars equivalent to Howard Beale's speech from Network, the the Mad as Hell speech. Yeah. And instead of asking people to go out to their windows and start shouting, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, she asks them to fight the bastards. And they do. And it's it's amazing. And the other thing that this reminds me of is is pretty close to the same time Ezra is giving his speech similarly via hologram or via broadcast on Lothal and asking the people there to rise up. And then that's similar again to Mon Mothma's speech that she gives to the galaxy after she leaves the Senate and the, the rebels crew tries to get her to Yavin four. So it's like this theme in this era of star Wars is really important of people actually boldly standing up, and saying, here's the message, here's how we need to fight back, is really powerful. And I think Marva acknowledges, like, it's really easy for someone who's dead to tell you all to fight. And that's what makes Ezra's speech and Mon Mothma's powerful in different ways, because they are alive and they are able to be hunted by the Empire and punished for those actions. And it's just like this snowball effect of a bigger message and a bigger message and a bigger message until they blow up the Death Star. Yeah. Um, I wanted to relay this technical thing that I thought was interesting. Cause I, at first I was like, why is Mar- Marvel appears to be looking down at the people at her funeral as if she could see them there. And I was like, that's a little weird. And then I realized that she's probably recording the message to B2 EMO <laughs> No, no, she's not. That was so. I was thinking that too. She's not oh. recording it to be too, like because she talks about how like she's worthy of the stone and stuff, and she's dressed in her daughter's of Ferrix like outfit, and so there's like a lot of grandeur and circumstance there. Um, remember in in episode eleven when Brasso tells B two that the daughters of Ferrix have a matter like a, a job of grave importance for him. Yeah. This is that job. Wait, I'm because confused can you what imagine you're saying. What? I'm confused at what you're saying. Like, 
okay. This it was it was it was arranged so that like they they she knew that this was going to be like, oh. played it played in this fashion. No, and, I, I I get that. So you but, think that she's like imagining the people below her while she's recording? Oh no, it? absolutely, she is imagining the people below her. Okay. Um, but she's recording it with the daughters of Ferrix because B two can't lie and he can't tell people about this, right? Um, so she's not going to record it with B2 and he's going to get too depressed because he's a depressed droid. Yeah. Um, so that's why in, in the last episode, Brasso's like the daughters of Ferrix have an important job for you. And his job is to project this message that they give him. They load up right before the funeral. And it's like a really interesting bit of storytelling that they don't state outright, but they imply through a few different points in the story with B2. So even B2 sort of gets an arc and gets to be brave and do this in this huge moment here. Yeah. And uh, I want to say a lot of the speech is spent with us on Luthen, like seeing his reaction to that. What do you think he's thinking here? What do, what do you think? Because uh, I don't think he came to Ferrix expecting this. I think he's thinking his plan is working. <laughs> Uh, okay, Cassian makes his way through the tunnels into the old hotel turned prison. Uh, almost kills the chef, but the chef knew him and uh, shows him where to go. Um, Tigo storms in and throws B2, EO, uh, B2 over and to end the projection. And, uh, you know, now I'm upset because you, you, you can't hurt. You can't hurt a droid. Um uh, and this begins the uprising of the citizens with Brazo uh, beating the troopers with Marvo's brick, which I loved. Uh, what, Brad, what, what did you think of this whole uprising? Uh, it's great. You know, I mean, it's like like Brian alluded to earlier, you know, it's this idea of these uh, this revolution, you know, and the way it rises up. And this is these are the people of Ferrix. These are the kind of people that, uh, you know, weren't focused on very much in any of the the Star Wars uh, movies. And that's what makes Andor so great. And so seeing them, you know, roused and inspired by what Marva is saying and just like, you know, taking these bastards down. Yeah. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, the time grappler rings the bell in the tower and the Imperials go to stop him or, or they send some stormtroopers to stop him. Uh, Cassian takes out a soldier in the hotel and finds Fix's room it's clear that she is not in the condition that he remembers. It's kind of sad. What, what, what did you guys make of this reunion of Bix and Cassian? It's not what I wanted of it, but I don't, I, I don't think the story wanted to give me what I wanted of it. I mean, what did you want? A more an emotional kind of thing, and it was kind of sad. It was just sad. Well, it reminded me a little bit of the moment in um, Empire, when they toss Han back into the cell after torturing him. And you don't feel a lot like, you know, making kissy faces and, and having this emotional reunion when you've just been tortured. <laughs> hey, I'm not saying kissy faces. I just like a hug or something. I don't know. She just like sits there. I get it. She's been like tortured for so long. And it, it, this is not the show for that. But um, uh, Wilman pulls out uh the homemade pipe bomb and throws it towards the imperials and it sets off a bunch of the imperial bombs in like uh that area and the imperial forces continue to take down the rioters stormtroopers find 
placement on the second level and start taking out pe- people with their blasters. Uh, Zanwan is killed. Uh, R.I.P. Uh, Korv discovers Sinta tailing him in the alleyway and she takes him out and shoves him into a doorway. Uh, Helga drags B2 out of the smoke-filled skirmish and uh, Cassian makes his escape uh, so the, uh, with Bix and he sees Nurchi's body on dead lying dead on the floor of the hotel so he has been killed as a result of the bomb and you know what they say uh stitch uh snitches get stitches right yeah it's a really beautiful irony that his whole thing was like this will keep me safe and the opposite happened yeah uh Dedrick joins the fight gets hit in the head from what the audio description tracks as a flying brick I feel like if it was actually a flying brick, she'd be out, but so, whatever. She I, I gets mean, hit like, in the I head with something. At the very least, it was a rock. Yeah. Because I watched that a couple times trying to see what it was, and it looked rock or brick-like. Yeah. It was uh, just fast. She deserved it. <laughs> uh, she tries to crawl uh, to her dro- uh, the pistol that she dropped and keeps on getting hit by passerbys. The gun keeps on like eluding her, getting kicked away. And I was going to ask you guys because I, I couldn't think of like what movie is this from? Is this like an Indiana Jones? Like I feel like there's some movie that this is a reference to, where someone's on the ground trying to get their gun. Um, the thing that I was kind of reminded of is actually like, um, there's a couple of of stories of reporters that were sort of caught in these crowds and war zones, um in the middle east and that's that's kind of where my mind went but you're probably right there probably is a film reference and i'm kicking myself for not being able to come up with it at the moment i was like watching i was like this is from something but i couldn't i couldn't place my finger on it it's probably something very obvious too i was thinking it was an indiana jones moment but i don't think it was anyways um okay uh so the bell ringer or the time grappler it's called the time grappler he's still ringing the bell and um how long is the the time grappler ringing the bell seems like forever in my mind but anyways uh the stormtrooper who probably spent uh 10 minutes climbing those tower the tower circular stairs have you ever seen a tower circular stairs have you ever been in a stormtrooper outfit like it's hard to climb stairs or climb anything in a stormtrooper so the the, the stormtrooper has probably been Climbing the stairs for like 10 minutes, going up like, you know, the circular staircase, getting his armor stuck into the thing and have like whatever. Finally gets to the top and he's instantly kicked over the ledge to his death by, by the time grappler. And uh, I almost felt bad, guys. Almost. No, no, not even close. <laughs> I um, I think he deserved it. Oh, he definitely deserved it. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, so someone finally gets Deidre's p- pistol and puts it to her back and escorts her out. And it turns out it's Cyril. She seems uh, grateful he was there to save her. And uh, is it bad that I felt happy for Cyril in this moment? That he kind of got this redemptive moment in his story. It's line? a little gross. 
It is. Yeah. It, I totally get it, but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of glad that this guy finally got some kind of like he's been trying this whole time, and he he did something, and he actually got like you know a thank you. I think I think this actually opens the potential for him being ISB in season two. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and also and also maybe for them to kiss. <laughs> oh, that, that that that's the sequel to Brian's uh, fan fiction on Tumblr. It's, it's, it was so weird, like when he was sitting there talking to Mosk, and he's just like, "There she is." Like, <laughs> he's totally so... a creep. I totally yeah. agree. He's a creep. I feel bad for being happy for him, but I, but I'm somehow happy for him. Uh, okay, so Val and uh, Cinta pack up their things val notices the blood on cinta's arm and she assures him or assures her it's fine it's not hers uh pelga jesse and brazo ready the ship to take off casting shows up with bix he helps load up the ship and says his goodbyes bix says casting will find them and casting assures them that he will where are they going because they mention some kind of moon? The Gunji moon, um, which is a moon. Uh, I don't think we have much more information about th- than that, right? It's not any of the places that we'd seen before. Okay, so this is, it's made up for this show. I think so. Yeah. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. I couldn't find any information, so I think you're probably right. Uh, Wilman, Bix... Brazo, Jezzy, and B2 take off in the ship and shoots it shoots away. And this ship is actually the same ship that was used by Cassian in episode one of the show. So uh bookends. Uh you know, whatever. Uh then uh we cut to Cursant. I like I like the bookend too, that in those first episodes, the guy in the junk shot or the junk yard is just like nope you can't do this again you just got to go away i never want to see it again see you again but then now when cassian's here and like ferrix is rising up the guy's like yes take the ship go (laughs) it's like a poem it rhymes uh then then we cut to croissant again it feels out of place in this episode uh mon and perrin introduce lydia to davio skullin's son and uh I want to mention that she has her traditional two Chandrillan braids out and is in like some kind of uh, traditional Chandrillan garment uh, dress. And uh, Moth seems unsure, or Mon- Mothma seems unsure. While the audio description says that Lydia shows, quote, an unbridled excitement. She's so excited to get married to this or meet this guy that she's going to get married to forced to get married to um yeah what, what did you guys think of uh brad I, I don't think i've heard you talk about this whole storyline what do you think of of this and how uh mon's daughter is basically getting set up with this this guy's son oh i mean it sucks it's you know it's it's very game of thrones uh esque you know to to borrow a the most recent uh you know example of these kind of archaic traditions be you know forcing relationships upon people um yeah it'll be interesting to see whether or not mon mothma's daughter has like a change of heart because like clearly she's doing this partially maybe entirely 
uh, to spite her mother because her mother obviously doesn't like the, these kinds of Chandrilin traditions. Uh, and I wonder if we'll see like an evolution as like time has passed where like she starts to realize that uh, maybe her mother isn't so terrible and that she doesn't need to like always do uh, go against her wishes. Um, you know, so I, I do wonder if, if that this will also have a bigger part to play as, as time goes on too. you know, it might, could end up uh, being, you know, a key relationship that maybe somehow ends up helping the rebellion in some way other than what the, the intended, uh, you know, um, outcome was to help her like uh, get some of her money free and whatnot. Well, uh, I can tell you the end credits give us names for Davio's wife and son. The, the wife is named Runai, I think. R-U-N-A-I. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, <laughs> played by Rosalind Halstead. And the son is named Stecken. S-T-E-K-E-K-A-N. Uh, and that's uh, played by Finley Glasgow, who uh, this is his first credited acting role. So there you go. Uh, Luthen returns to his Fondor Hullcraft and gives the ship an instruction, which is not immediately initiated. And he realizes something's up. He walks to the cockpit and maybe it's just me. And like we were talking last week and I think it was Brian that said that Luthen might die this episode. Someone said I- Theorized Luthen could I, die. I'm sure it could have been a possibility. Yeah. Uh, but I, was it only me that thought in this moment, oh, no, Dedra has shown up or something and he's going to die? Before the I, I reveal of Cassian. I didn't get that vibe starting the show. Like, in previous episodes when we talked yeah. about it, I was like, yeah, it could happen. But as soon as we got into this narrative, like, it had completely slipped my mind. Yeah. Um. Well, instead, it's Cassian who's there. Cassian asks if if uh, Luthen was there to kill him and offers to make it easy, presenting him with his blaster to finish him off. And uh, I wanted to ask you guys, like, do you really think that Cassian is there? Because he says, kill me or take me in. Do you really think Cassian is there to actually be killed or do you think he wanted to be taken in? Taken no, in? it's... No, this is this is his only the only play he has to not get killed by them, and it's 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 a it's basically him putting faith in the idea that Luthen knows keeping Cassian alive and around is better for him and the rebellion yeah. than simply killing him and go because when Luthen scoffs and he's like he's like, he's basically saying it's like you son of a bitch it's like you know uh, and Cassian immediately has a sigh of relief he's like he's like because he he definitely had no idea whether or not Luthen was going to kill him or take him in or like realize that what Cassian was trying to do here and show them that like he's here and like he's, he's here for the fight now. Yeah. That's why I thought so too, because he just promised Bix and everyone that he's going to find them. And it like, didn't seem like he really wanted to get killed. Uh, Brian, did you read the, 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 the scene the same way? Yeah, no, I did. I think, Typically on on readings, Brad and I seem actually pretty close. We just vary in our level of enthusiasm for how we read it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Okay, so uh, Luthen smiles, decides to take him in rather than kill him, or at least that's what we're implied. Cut to next season when Cassian's dead on the floor. No, um, 
probably not going to happen. Like uh, very, 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 very unlikely to happen. Uh, what did you guys think of the ending of this episode before we get to the end credit scene? Which, by the way, you guys alerted to me to Brian didn't actually see it the first time around. I think Brad. Uh, what I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. Someone, somebody else on the slash room staff brought it to to my attention. I had, I had no idea. I didn't even think to check because Star Wars doesn't do credit scenes. So. Well, we did. They did one in Book of Boba Fett. So this is the right, second, right, right. This is this is the second this year. Oh, they did do one in Boba Fett. I forgot about that. And was Solo. An end credit scene? No, no, it wasn't. That was at the. That was before the credits. The Darth Maul thing. Yeah, that was. Well, that was in the movie. It was in the movie. Interesting. Okay, so this is not the first end credit scene. Uh, but this is to say that if you're listening, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, you might want to pause and go watch it before. Yeah, it's at the very end of the credits too. It's not a mid-credit scene, so that makes it even more sneaky. Uh, but before we get to the end credit scene, what do you, what do you guys think of how this episode ends? I'll start. I'll, okay, I'll start things off. There has been a criticism with this show that it doesn't feel like a a uh, doesn't feel like a traditional TV show where the the episodes kind of just end in mid story and. They don't really have like a huge cliffhanger. It, it's just like you know a little bit of a cliffhanger, but not like much. And it, it doesn't feel how a traditional TV show ends its episodes. And I always kind of wrote that off as like, oh, there's these three episode arcs, and they're, they're doing this different thing. And I, I feel like I, as much as I like this episode, I don't love the ending. Doesn't feel like the ending of a season finale. I guess is. I mean, I think that just fits to the vibe of the whole show, though. The whole show kind of flies in the face of, like, the traditional tropes of both Star Wars and what we expect from uh, from television, you know? And I, and I think that that's kind of what makes it better is, you know, it's not doing these obvious, like, you know, start, start, start points and, and end points and uh, leaving you with a, a cliffhanger week to week. You know, it's, it's not leaning into it. It's telling the story it wants to tell. Um, and like, it's just, it's, it's long form TV storytelling. And if anything, like, I feel like this kind of ending is perfectly in line with the rest of Andor because it's, it's not this, this, you know, big, uh, bomb, you know, bombastic ending. It's not anything that leaves you like, uh, on the edge of your seat or anything like that. It's this, this is the moment where Cassian Andor decides to join the rebellion and that's huge for Cassian, and it's just yeah. uh, it leads it leads us right into the um, the four years leading up to Rogue One. And I think it echoes the cut from Episode Ten, uh, Luthen's speech. Right? Remember how Luthen's speech? He's just like, "We, I'll take heroes wherever I can get them." And then it cuts to Cassian and Melshi just like running on the sands of Narkina Five, trying to find some way to survive. And I think that was um, a cut meant heavily to imply that that Melshi and Cassian were among those heroes that Luthen would take. And so when you cut to the season finale and Luthen is like smiling, I think it references back to that cut. I don't know, like it's it's so smart the way this is written and references back to storytelling that's done even in the juxtaposition of things like that rather than stated outright. And it really asks you and invites you to, like, read deeper into these things. And for me, it ends with that ellipsis, like Brad said. Like, 
Cassian's joining the rebellion. That's where season two is headed. Like what, what else, what other ending would we want? Yeah. But I don't know. I guess with mo- most TV shows nowadays, like there's more question marks that like get you excited. Of like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? How is this person going to get out of, how is, you know, and it felt like, it felt, honestly, this feels like the end of an episode and we could be getting an episode next week. Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't feel like uh, the Ferrix confrontation definitely feels like, like a climac- climactic thing, but the way the episode ends does not feel like the usual season finale of a, of a show. But uh, I guess we're getting, you know... Not a television show written by Tony Gilroy, but we're getting a Tony Gilroy television show. <laughs> um, okay, let's talk about the end credit scene. So uh, we finally get to... Everybody was asking when they were on Narkina 5 and they, they were all... The prisoners were all building these things. We were asking... I saw a lot of people on Twitter like even asking Pablo and stuff like that, you know, what, what is that? Are we going to find out? Um, I think we even theorized on this show that it's probably part of the Death Star in some way. So patting ourselves on the back, uh, this end credit scene shows us these mini droids helping Plasma Torch, the six arm spines that were being constructed by the prisoners on Arkina 5. And they're, basically connecting these hexagon shapes together and we pull back to reveal that it's part of the outer rim being constructed on the unfinished death star super laser and uh i thought this was a cool end credit scene because it 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 it, it felt you know it gives context to what we were seeing but it also connects indoor's story to you know what what happens in Rogue One? Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't mind the credit scene. I think I think it's fine. Uh, one thing I do always appreciate whenever we get shots like this is a reminder of just how big the Death Star really is, <laughs> and like the the way like it gave us a sense of scale of like moving back from these droids and like sh- pulling back and pulling back and showing us just how small of a part we saw in the opening to how you know how big the Death Star really is, and it's a cool shot of seeing how. Uh, you know the pieces of the super laser are are floating uh, in this very visually uh, you know appealing way. And by the way, the same- in that in that respect, it also makes you think like how many prisoners are there out there building right. these pieces because those are just like the tiniest like little Legos in this Lego set. Of- yeah, at, but at the same time, I was I almost like wished that they wouldn't have like explained what it was they were building. Like for me. It didn't matter what they were building. It was, it could have been anything. What, what mattered was like the it's it's the oppression was the point. Like it doesn't matter if it's they're building pieces of the Death Star, if they're building land speeder engines or anything like that. It's just that they're using them as as labor as a way of keeping them down. You know. So like, sure, it's a fun, cool connection. I didn't need it, but like, it's it's a cool shot. And yeah, sure, why not? Brian, what are your thoughts? Um. I've been. I mean, it, it's it's cool, but like, I'm glad they did it as a post credit scene rather than trying to cram it into the narrative, um, because this has nothing to do with the narrative, right? Oh yeah. This is this is the one bit of fat that doesn't really matter, and that none of the characters know, right? Like, if you watch the show and think about the way the the narrative is constructed, like everyone has a POV and we're all learning everything and piecing the story together from very specific characters POVs. 
and we don't have that for the Death Star. So, like, that also got me thinking. Like, I was trying to figure out where this, where that level of construction in the Death Star takes place because it feels too advanced for five years before the Battle of Yavin. Um, because uh, Galen Erso is still working on the um, the super weapon at this point um, because of Catalyst and Tarkin. And then I realized, like, it doesn't matter because it's so far removed from the narrative. Yeah. That could be two weeks from Rogue One and it wouldn't matter um, because the story point is that those pieces that they were building in prison are part of the Death Star. And maybe that slows production down, maybe it doesn't, but like we'll never know that in the narrative. So it's impossible to place that on the timeline, and it's impossible to, like, I don't know. I've thought way too much about this. I'm sorry. I don't know. To, to me, I think it's just a fun bit of, well, first of all, yes, us finding out what they were actually building. But I think it's, like, showing you how connected Cassian is to this thing that he ends up being so instrumental in bringing down. He's a piece uh, in, in bringing down the Death Star, just as in those things are a piece of the Death Star that he helped create. Do you know what I mean? I feel, I feel like yeah. there's something uh, poetic about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on this episode before we get into speculation? Um, it was good. <laughs> yes. I think we all agree on that. Okay, speculation. Uh, Tony Gilroy has said that season two will begin one year later. Uh, so that puts us at four BBY. So we – it's weird well, because I, I feel like when he was on stage at D23, Comic-Con? Uh, no, maybe it was Star Wars Celebration. I think it was Star Wars Celebration. One of those. He he basically said that the season two was going to be four years, spanning four years. But it, it now, is it going to be spanning four years? Yeah. So I yeah, I talked to to Tony Gilroy about this, and each arc is going to take place at some point in that first year, in that in that fourth year, and then that third year, and then that second year, and then that first year, leading right up to Rogue One. And so, like, um. That's why I don't want to say, like, a full year is going to pass because, like, we, we watched this year that's, like, five BBY. It could be three months into year four or it could be eight months into year four or 12 months or whatever. Yeah. You know, it could be the equivalent of December for BBY. Um, and then the next one could pick up in January in three or it could pick up in March. You know what I mean? So, like, I don't th- – I think we're going to get – isolated sort of adventures and and points on the story rather than having stories cover entire full years. And that's going to give them a narrative power to create narrative intrigue in us asking questions. Holy crap. How did things advance so far in the intervening time between those cuts uh, between arcs? So what do you guys think is going to happen in this year later? Like, do you think the rebellion has now formed into something like is there like more than a group of five people? So, so I do, I do want to add also like uh, a little bit of like additional additional clarification uh, along with that too, because uh, Ryan Scott spoke to Tony Gilroy recently as well, leading up to the uh, finale, and this is what Tony Gilroy said. Uh, he said 
for season two, he said, quote, we're going to be covering four years. Every time we do three episodes in the second half, we jump ahead a year. When we come back to the show for part two, it'll be a year later. We'll do three episodes, then we'll jump a year. We'll, then we'll do three episodes, and then we'll jump a year on that. So that the, uh, And they said the last year will be the year that takes us into Rogue One. So like there will be big time jumps between the three-episode arcs that they'll be doing in season two. Okay. That's going to be exciting, I think. Um Okay, uh, what was I gonna? What was I asking you for? Uh, uh, yeah, what, what do you what do you think, Brad? Do you think when we jump a year into season two, do you think the rebellion is going to be more solidified at that point? Yeah, I feel like it has to be. You know, I I, I think that that we'll probably see a little bit more organization. Uh, you know, maybe they'll have some more resources. Um, but I I don't think it'll be like necessarily a, a well oiled machine. You know, like I, by the time we. The very first time, you know, we see the Rebel Alliance in Star Wars New Hope, you know, like they they have plenty of resources at their disposal, not anywhere near the size of the Empire. But like they're it's clear that they've been doing this for a little while now. And so uh, if anything, maybe this will a comparison might be like uh, in the same way that we see uh, Batman in the Batman after he's been Batman for like a year or two. Like this, we'll we'll see it. Like the the Rebel Alliance will still be like learning things, but they're not necessarily trying to like uh, light the spark anymore. Like the spark's been lit, and now they probably have some more weight behind them. Uh, Brian, what do you what do you think? Where do you think we're gonna start things off in season two? I wouldn't be surprised if we start things off in season two, at least the first half of season two, with K two. Oh, that quickly. Um. I'll be honest, I don't remember at what point in the timeline exactly. <laughs> There's a comic book that places it. Um but it's in this it's in the season two space. Yeah, yeah. So either they're gonna skip right past it and not try to adapt the comic book. And that could be I, I think that's probably gonna be within the first two arcs. So I think K two would be a solid bet on those things. It's gonna be so weird that they did that in the comic book. Because I feel like you want to see them meet in live action. Well, but I mean, like, the comic book came out in the lead up to Rogue One. And, like, no one at that time was like, you know, it would be great, this prequel (laughs) series. Like, Disney Plus wasn't really even, like, a thing at that point. So the idea of doing a whole bunch of Star Wars television wasn't, other than, like, Clone Wars stuff, nobody was thinking about that. So it was just, like, I think... It was something people wanted to see, and Marvel pitched it, and no one had a problem with it, where I think that if they would have known Tony Gilroy was going to do a TV series, they wouldn't have let Marvel touch it. Yeah, and it's probably it's probably like the the idea to, like, this is, this is why uh, Favreau and Filoni probably had that uh, Mandalorian novel canceled, you know, because they don't want to be you know, beholden to any canon stories about Mandalorian that, like, mess with anything they might want to do, whether it's in the past or the present or the future. It's it's exactly why the Mandalorian stuff, like, you haven't seen any source books either and why we still have to call her Frog Lady and stuff. <laughs> it, it, it's my whole problem with, like, when the sequel trilogy was coming out and all the books around it, like, literally didn't fill in any of the gaps at all. Because it seemed like, you know, J.J. and whoever, you know, even when Ryan was working on Last Jedi, it felt like still give them the room because so, they, they need that space of, like, being able to change something or, like, decide something later on. So, like, we can't we can't write any books 
it, it was it was cool to me like when Rogue One came out they had that um Catalyst I think it was called Yeah Catalyst but I'll tell you um the reason Catalyst was sort of a one off and a fluke and we're not going to see stuff like that in parallel with movies again was the same reason why they didn't do it with Force Awakens it was just reshoots kept changing it and changing it and changing it I talked to Jim Lucino the author about it and he was like he had to rewrite that book a few times just every time Tony Gilroy would reshoot scenes, right? Because it would be like, oh, this changes the entire premise of my novel. I've got to rewrite this, and I've got to rewrite that, and it was just a nightmare. And um, part of the reason we didn't get any of that with Force Awakens is that's how J.J. Abrams works. Like, he finds his movie in the edits and the, the reshoots. And so they didn't have anything solid to be able to tell people, go ahead and do this stuff with, which is why we had so much crap about Constable Zuvio, because it was one of the few things in Force Awakens J.J. Abrams didn't keep messing with as the movie went on. And which is why we actually got stuff that that felt a little more substantial for The Last Jedi tie-ins, because Ryan Johnson... Talking to folks at Lucasfilm, Ryan Johnson was very confident about the movie he was making the entire time and worked on making that. Well, he movie. also finished it like a year before it came, or you know, I don't want to say a year, but it he was a long time. He finished it really early. It was like I think it was six or seven months early. Yeah. Um, like he was on a trajectory to to get it done in time for like that May release, I'm guessing, and he had it done in time for that. Yeah. Um. Which makes it easy. If you've got a movie in the can, it's a lot easier to do all that tie-in material. And J.J. Abrams just works chaotically. And doubly so when he's dealing with Rise of Skywalker and having to come up to, with with cobbling together that puzzle after Carrie Fisher's death. Uh, what do you guys think is going to happen to Cyril in the second season? Do you think he's going to be part of the ISB? I think he's going to try to kiss Dedra. And it's going to be gross. Brad, are they going to kiss? Is it going to be gross? I mean, yeah. I, I hope that they have just a real, <laughs> real gross, unsettling, creepy kiss. Like they, they, they need to like unleash that uh, that tension. I just, I want to, I want to see that gross kiss. Uh, yes, give us the no, gross I kiss. No, I think he's, I think he's going to finally, he's finally won himself into her good graces. I think so too. Do, do you actually think there's going to be a romance, or do you think it's going to be like? No, I think it's going to be very one-sided, and I think he's going to be gross. Yeah, I think so, too. I don't think it's going to be a a two-way romance. Um, uh, What what do you think's going down with Bix and her, like, the whole crew? Like, originally, I thought that they were going to instantly be part of the rebellion, but now it seems like that's not the case. No, I think they are. I think they're going to be their own little rebel cell. I think that actually might be what some of the first arc is, is Cassian working with this particular group of people who are highly motivated um, to be working against the Empire. And when you look at the way the Rebel Cells work through Rebels, uh, Star Wars Rebels, like you, they're working in a lot of different um, places. And then add Saw to the mix. I think Saw is going to be coming back too. And I think Cassian and Saw might actually have some history together. At least Luthen might try connecting them. I will say that after building up this this whole season, if you told me, like, what characters would you like to see in the Rebellion in Season 2 out of the season, I think Bix would have been in B2, I guess would be the only two that like ended up on that ship. Like I, di- I didn't think that like Wilman 
was going to have a significant role after season one. I didn't think Brazo. I honestly didn't think we were going to see Brazo after episode two or three again. <laughs> Jezzy. I didn't, you know, we barely know Jezzy. So it's interesting that like this group of characters are all in the ship and I feel like we don't know much about half of them. But um, I like Brasso though. Like I think he's oh, super he's cool. Good. Yeah. Uh, it just, but did you think he was going to be a major character after episode three? I was I, hoping. <laughs> I think like after his introduction, he was just so cool. Yeah. Hey, I do. I want to provide a, a little bit of, of hope uh, because in uh, our interview with Tony Gilroy, Ryan Scott asked about the fate of Kino Loy, and Tony Gilroy just said, "Well, we didn't see him die." So <laughs> that sounds like such a Brian answer, by the way. Hey, you know what? Like you've been you, when you travel around Star Wars circles and interview <laughs> people enough, you just kind of pick up the lingo. Yeah. Uh, okay. I I I would hope. I don't know. I'm not sure if you could make that sense. Make that make sense? Like jumping a year later and you just see Kino somewhere, but yeah, maybe. I mean, it, I mean, it wouldn't like. There's no telling like that. He, he yeah. couldn't become part of the rebellion. Like this. This is the thing where like. Like like Remick says in his thing, like you have all these people around who are part of the cause, but they just don't know it yet, you know. Uh, and so I think that like there's there's easily the possibility that he could you know be part of the movement and just pop up somewhere, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. So the other storyline that we're following uh, this season is Mon Mothma and her family, and now that they've kind of uh, um, given up their their daughter to. Uh, scummy gangster in exchange for him possibly providing them money uh what would you guys like to see happen next season with that that whole story i think blevin i think blevin going and and making life more and more difficult and i we know that the gorman massacre happens during this time and mon mothma leaves for the rebellion and i'd really like to see more of her side of that escape from the empire and resignation from the senate when does that happen in the timeline? I want to say two or three BBY. So it's going to be the 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 second or the yeah. third arc. Mm. It'll be it'll be interesting to see when she finally gets involved in things. And also, when when is the when is like the re- rebels like when the rebels realize in in Star Wars Rebels spoilers for Star Wars Rebels. Um, but when is it that they realize there's other factions in the rebellion? Um, that's, that's really sort of like season two is when they start working with the rest of Phoenix squadron because they were their own rebel cell. Like they were the ghost squadron and then they started working with Phoenix squadron and then they ended up on, um, the planet Adalon and then they lost that planet because, and then that's when they ended up joining forces with the rest of the rebellion on Yavin four. You know they they do have some of these characters cast for um for the Ahsoka show. Yeah, no, that's I I it wouldn't surprise me if there was any intersections there. But I also don't get the impression that Tony Gilroy is actually interested in connecting any of Star Wars. He's interested <laughs> in telling a very human story about what these rebellions mean. And I think this first season was very much at his, him at his most Michael Clayton, 
with Cassie and Andor, and I think season two is going to be him much more at his his born movies with Cassie and Andor. I think you're right. I, like, it, wasn't there like a report that he had like a no Easter eggs policy? At least on the yeah, episodes, mo- yeah. Most of the stuff that fit found its way in was like details that Pablo added to tie things through like together like details in the dialogue that he gave him or stuff the production designer slipped through like I remember reading an interview with Tony Gilroy saying like I was surprised to learn the provenance of many of the many of the items in Luthen's shop because I had no idea (laughs) you probably wouldn't have liked that um okay so I think uh we've talked about almost all the characters and where they are now uh, I guess, uh, what, Brad, is there any, anything that you would like to see happen in the second and final season of the show that, uh, hasn't happened yet? Time travel. <laughs> Brad. <No. laughs> uh, Gilly. No, um, I, wait, no, wait, not Brian, really. It could happen. No, no, no. I mean, don't, don't. it has time travel. Sort of has happened in Star Wars with the world between worlds, but that's not. And we saw that in Luthen Shop. So, okay. Uh, no, I mean, it's if anything, you know, like I just, I'm, I'm so excited that we're that they that this that season two, you know, is happening, regardless of whether or not the, the ratings for Andor have been stellar. Uh, you know, I, I think it's great that there's, they're still doing it. They haven't pulled back on it. Tony Gilroy will be just as involved in the second season as he was in the first season. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I, I never thought I would be this invested in, in Andor as a series, but I am, I'm very excited to see, uh, how the, the timeline fills up and we lead up back up to Rogue One. Yeah. I'm glad it's happening because, you know, we don't know how successful Andor is or isn't, but judging from the, amount of people talking about it or not talking about it online it doesn't seem to be as popular as any of the other star wars shows it seems to be like very i uh, think people are gonna catch on though i think people like like my son still hasn't watched it like because he was waiting for the finale and now he's gonna binge it and the holiday season is here right so there's you've got a lot of those holdouts going like "Eh, i'm gonna wait until it's all over now all of a sudden have a holiday weekend I think this show will play a lot better to people who may have had problems with it in a binge-watching session. Yeah. If you do need any indication as to how the ratings are probably doing behind the scenes, I think the fact that uh, they're going to be airing the first two episodes of Andor on uh, Freeform and ABC and uh, putting them on Hulu during the Thanksgiving holiday weekend is an indication that they're still, still trying to get more people on board to watch the show. Um, I wish that they would have done the first three episodes because I feel like doing just the first two episodes isn't going to really help them that much. As we talked about the fact that the first two episodes are uh, a little bit of a, s- a slow burn lead up into how good the rest of the show is, uh, even though those first two episodes are still good. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully that helps. But they, they clearly want some more people on board the show. Yeah. Um, you, you know, one last question for you guys before we leave, because this is the the last episode of the Andor series, um, a podcast, or at least season one. Uh, you know, Bob Iger is back for seeing Bob Chapek as the head, the CEO of of Disney. And I want to know what you guys think. Brian, what do you think might actually – will that change anything with Star Wars going forward? Um, 
I don't think so. I don't think Iger had much to do with Star Wars other than like setting the release dates or like distribution. I I don't think acquiring the whole company. Well, I mean, like other than acquiring the company, yeah. but like I really don't think Disney has the influence on Lucasfilm that YouTube grifters seem to have made people believe. One hundred percent. Um. And I think anybody that like I've seen reports of like now that Iger's back, Kathleen Kennedy is going to be out. Do, do you know who uh, is good friends with Bob Iger? Kathleen. Yeah, Kennedy. Kathleen Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't see that happening at all. Um, so uh, take that off the plate. But I I do think that there's going to be a mandate from Iger of like we need to get Star Wars back into the theatrical business. Like I feel like that's like I think. I, I I honestly believe that he, like some of the th- like yes um, as CEO of the Walt Disney Company, there his hands aren't in the creative things of all the pieces. Lucasfilm is run as its own company, but I think he he's getting in there and he's like, we're not gonna like hurt the legacy in the the pixar brand name by releasing more pixar movies on disney plus that's one of the things he's going to say and i think another thing he's going to say is we need to get star wars back on the the big screen and the, well, the question is how, how soon like they're they're not i mean they have taika waititi's in development they've got patty jenkins in development they've got others secretly in development that they haven't announced yet yeah and, there's a lot of stuff that's in the works and i think star wars celebration next year is probably going to be where they like really make the big push and being like here's what's coming yeah well i'm excited and for that ryan johnson's still on board for his brian keep on saying that but i i bet you it's never going to happen <laughs> did you i mean did you see his quotes coming out of the yes. glass onion press where he's like i've got to finish this in the next glass onion and then you know hopefully but like when i talked to people it was always a ways down the way it was just they wanted to sign him because they liked working with him that much you know when you finish a movie that big that early and they can make all of their marketing and licensing decisions that early that's that's money in the bank i believe all that i just still don't believe it's going to happen <laughs> but uh brad what do you think do you think this is going to change anything for star wars do I think like the the mere existence of Andor? No, uh, Iger uh, coming back in charge of Disney. Oh, I mean, I I don't know. I don't know if it'll change anything. Like, I'm not sure that Star Wars was ever really affected much by Bob Chapek's, uh, you know, uh, short sightedness and terrible decisions. You know, like I think we're just in that lull where Lucasfilm has still been figuring out exactly how they're going to kick off the next era of Star Wars on the big screen and. I feel like the yeah I don't I don't think Star Wars necessarily going to see any major changes just because Bob Iger is back. I feel like they were always you know operating on kind of their own wavelength and you know whatever was going to happen was going to happen and Chapek didn't really do anything to mess with that. Well, we'll see, we'll see. Um, I, I I hope that there's more theatrical stuff for for Star Wars. As much as I'm liking this TV stuff, I want I miss I miss Star Wars on the big screen. But um, okay. Oh, trust me, there's plenty of Star Wars on the way to the big screen. <laughs> Tell us about it, Brad. No, okay. Uh, you can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. Uh, Brian, where can we find you? Um, so I do the Full of Sith podcast. If you're interested in hearing me talk about Star Wars, you can you can catch me there. You can catch all of my coverage usually at uh, of Star Wars stuff at SlashFilm. And uh, if you want to follow me personally, you can go to my website or 
whatever social media that you choose to use today at Swankmotron, and my website is swankmotron.com. And Brad, I know that like uh, recently you've been putting together some some gift guides on the site. Indeed, I have. Thank you for bringing that up, Peter. Uh, if you are a big movie or TV fan, uh, feel free to check out Slash Film. Uh, every day this week, uh, a new gift guide installment will be released with tons, and I mean tons, uh, of different options for the, the movie and TV nerd in your life. Uh, I did a whole collection of movies on 4K and Blu-ray and Criterion and Steelbooks on Monday, uh, a bunch of TV uh, seasons and box sets on Tuesday. Today is a, a big roundup of a bunch of books. Uh, tomorrow will be uh, soundtracks and artwork. And Friday, there's one that will have like clothing and housewares and uh, some random accessories. And there's also a big toys and collectibles one that's on the way. But that, that one's taking a little bit of extra time just because of how much stuff there is. And like uh, we want to showcase everything properly. But yeah, plenty of options at your disposal. So be sure to check that yeah, out. Yeah, check it out. Uh, Slash from Daily is published every weekday on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. The link is in the show notes. And please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And if you have been enjoying this, you can support us for free by going to Apple Podcasts and write us a, you know, give us a five-star rating. Write us, like, you know, one or two-sentence review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Saving money on everything for your next project at Menards. It doesn't matter what job you're up against. Works cordless power tools and lawn equipment have the power for you to get the job done faster and easier. The PowerShare 20-volt batteries run longer on a single charge, and they can be used with other tools. Check out Menard's entire selection of works, cordless power tools, and lawn equipment. Plus the weekly flyer today on Menards.com. Save money.